Welcome to Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. C.H. Siddons. Hey. What's up, man? I got a first shout out. Oh, my goodness. You did. It's good to see you on the Zoom call. It's good to be seen. And Mr. Peter Crable. Hey, Mr. Krabs. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm doing well. It's good to see you guys. We're back together again, and we have a terrific show tonight. A special guest, Diane Ravitch, which we're very psyched about. She yes, is a big name. She's a, she's a big name for us. Uh, she recently wrote Slaying Goliath, not Saving Goliath, which I called it earlier. <laughs> no, Saving Goliath is written by Jeb Bush. Okay, and we're going to talk about Low Energy Jeb tonight, too, because he has a recent op-ed. That's right. He does, yes. He has um, nothing else to do. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Ed's Not Dead PC and check out the website, edsnotdead.com. Mr. Siddons is probably pretty close to publishing a couple new blog posts. I think and one of them's already published. Yeah, oh, okay. one, of, one of them's up and ready to rock and roll. What's Which one ti- is published? What's the title? Uh, the one about prin- principals in the classroom. Ooh, this Ooh. is going to get Robbie excited. <laughs> right, yeah. it's, my, it's my proposal to, to make t- principals and administrators teach a couple classes. Yeah. I'm, I'm down with that. You're going to help me do all the other work I have to do? No, oh, I, have, I have so much work. He's oh my god! I have, so sign, I, have, I have to sign so many things. <laughs> Those TPS reports aren't going to sign themselves. <laughs> Did you get that memo, Peter? Right. <laughs> I'll read it and I'll see what I think of it. I'd be happy to teach. I taught a reading. I taught a reading intervention group when I was an elementary school principal. I don't doubt it for a second. Yep, I did. Yeah, that's yep. cool. Um, and you can uh, check out the website, edsnotdead.com. I already said that. And see what Mr. Siddons thinks about principles and what their role should be, considering he's never been one. And then uh, what else? Mr. Craves, you got an op-ed coming out, right? You're going you're gonna to drop a little nugget from that in the show tonight? Uh, well, yeah. I don't know if it's going to be actually published. But yeah, for the article we're going to discuss on Jeb Bush, it's time to embrace distance learning. Uh, he basically calls it the wave of the future. And I strenuously disagree with that assertion all right well you you uh i I, we're gonna think positively i think it is gonna be published yeah i know i thought it was pretty good 250 words or less i succinctly explained why it was not good for teachers students or families i thought i thought uh op-eds in the washington post were 750 or less Op- yes, Jeb Bush got an op-ed. Mine would only be a letter to the editor. Oh, got it. Oh, yes. yes, it was not an op-ed. It's it a little below. So got as it. my high school journalism teacher, Mrs. Hardy, used to say, you had to be very pithy. Yes. Okay, yes. well, that's good. But I gave it some um, thought and kept it under the word limit. So. All right, so uh, it's that time of the show. It is show feedback, Mr. Mr. Siddons. We, we have some great responses back from... Uh, our last episode in the form of downloads. We had a, over a hundred downloads in a, in a matter of six hours from our interview, uh, our episode with Andy Hargreaves, which is very people, exciting. People were very into it. Big yes. numbers. As was yep. I. Did you see how I trolled you on Facebook today? No, I don't look at Facebook. Okay. Well, you respond. <laughs> you, you responded respond, to it. Responded yeah. to, you responded to friend of the show, David Heller. I did. I didn't. I only respond to him though. <laughs> okay i don't respond i don't get on facebook and then i happened to look at facebook this morning he, he responded to I you saw... but it was really to david heller <laughs> just so we're clear oh i need to see that now i can't yeah, you wait need, you need to check that out okay uh, thanks thanks to david he's always positive about the show we appreciate david yeah. listening 
when just one one last thing I want to mention about uh, our our interview with Dr. Hargreaves because he is such a a global figure um, spans his work spans the United States um, Canada he's done a lot of work in Uruguay I think he's even done some work in Australia uh, so in looking at some of the people that were liking posting etc some of the retweeting some of the comments. We really, we've gone global, fellas. We're we we're global in reach now. Really? Yeah. So there's some Uruguayan uh, res- people from Uruguay uh, responding, South Africa, England, Ireland. So really, really spanning the globe. Folks from Uruguay responded and you cut that part of the interview out. <laughs> 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 Sometimes tough editorial decisions have to be made. I apologize. That's right. I, I will give you a solid, Mr. Krabs. Uh our audience is probably appreciating our improved sound quality tonight. Indeed. I'm, I'm appreciating it. And I feel good about it. Being conscious of social distancing, Mr. Crable hooked us up with some new technology. Thank you. Yes, we have, we're microphoned up and looking. Yep. You'll never see this video, but we look, we look great right now. Very yeah. professional. Yeah, we're all dressed up for some reason. It's really strange. It's very odd. All right. What, very other, odd. Feed, what other feedback do you have, Mr. Sids? Uh, no feedback other than the fact that, uh, Frida is six months old today as the recording is today. Congratulations. Just wanted to let you know that. That is outstanding. Frida, six got, months old. And wow. she's, uh, she tried to bite my finger today and I found out that she's got two little teeth. Oh, she's got those two little toothers coming she's got, out. She's got those two little daggers that they get. <laughs> oh, they are daggers. <laughs> they're, they're sharp. So now yeah. she's. She eating solid food? Oh yeah. She's yeah, because that video, what what was that video you sent me that you had some t- terrible food you had stuck in front of her? <laughs> oh gosh, it was probably like squash or something. Yeah, it was so gross. <laughs> Here, Frida, I made she, some Brussels sprouts for you. <laughs> Brussels sprouts. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, Frida. H- happy B Day. Six months on the May the fourth be with you. That's right, right, right. May the fourth be with you, which I tweeted this this morning. Did you? Did you know that, Mr. Krebs? I did. Uh, I think that's pretty. It's pretty lame, but you know. <laughs> All right. Well, we will. We'll get to what we're watching at the end of the show. All right. There we go. All right. So let's jump in our first piece tonight, fellas. Mr. Siddons, you discovered it. It's an opinion piece in a local online publication, the Bethesda Beat. It is titled. Let's reconsider how we do high school. It's time for schools to distance themselves from outdated thinking by David Lapolito, who is a teacher at Bethesda Chevy Chase High School, also known locally as BCC. He writes a very compelling piece about uh, how this new era that we're in, um, I think, is beginning to show us the way about how school could change or the things that need to change. So he takes aim at standardized tests, those that have already been canceled and the opening that provides to maybe rethink having them at all, or at least less of them in the future. We can talk about that. Uh, He also takes aim at school rankings. Uh, He clearly is not a fan of Jay Matthews challenge index. And he goes on to point out that he thinks uh, school rankings are flawed and just reinforce inequality and stubborn school boundaries and then also grading the 4.0 grade system and uh how we grade in high school um he goes on to say that we give every year recommendations for high school seniors for colleges uh 
that are a much more holistic approach to how we assess kids and and get to know, and show how we've gotten to know kids versus the way that we kind of you know stick to our hundred point scales and sort and grade kids. Um, so he, he touches a little bit on instruction too, but not a whole lot on how to reimagine instruction. That's kind of how he starts out the piece, but he doesn't get really too too in too in depth on on how instruction would change. So, fellas, what do you think of of Mr. Lapalito's points? Well, I'll start with the the grading piece, just because I think that was the one that immediately spoke to me the most. And um, I I really like the idea and the analogy that he uses of um, giving feedback to kids based on uh, like a college recommendation. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at there's a couple of screenshots in the article, and looking at it, I'll confess I've not done. Uh, many, maybe even no college recommendations. So it was certainly illuminating to me. Yeah, you've done some. Um, certainly illuminating to me to see what they write. And it was like, yeah, this this does tell you more about the student. And then I was thinking, if I did have to write college recommendations, um, you know, there's a lot I could say about a lot of different kids that, that was really nuanced, that really gave um, a sense of who they were, of what made them tick of the areas they excelled in, of the areas that they've grown mm-hmm. in that maybe you haven't even seen yet. Um, and I think as we're moving, as many s- school systems are moving, um, you know, towards pass, fail, complete, incomplete, et cetera, it, it is a really intriguing idea and opportunity to rethink what um, school success looks like and how we provide feedback to students. And if it is something like a short narrative, uh, I, I don't know how realistic it is, but I, I I really like the idea of exploring it at least. Well, I know, Mr. Siddons, you have very strong feelings, as our listeners know, about grading. What were your thoughts about Mr. Lopolito's take on how grading could change? Well, I think what it, what this pandemic is showing us is that um, at the end of the day, a lot of our previously held beliefs about grading and assessment and ranking schools or judging schools is is either silly or just useless um for, for in terms of assignment and assessments and work that kids are doing i think i think this should show us that we need to move as a as an education system across the country to did they do they meet standard or that did they not um the 4.0 grading system the a through f grading system is it, it's just not a, appropriate in terms of did students learn what we wanted them to learn? And beyond that, the whole point of grades is to provide communication of, of performance. Uh, we could do much better as a system to provide actual quality feedback to kids and their work over a period of time rather than arbitrary numbers and letters. Yeah, I mean, I it's so funny about... Um, it's It just kills me about grades because there's been so much research on um, how kids use grades for performance comparisons. Yes. And, um, you know, what that does to students' sense of self-efficacy. I had to use that once on the show tonight. (laughs) And, I mean, I would just say, how do we compete and how do we compare ourselves without a 4.0 or a 100-point scale? Because right. that's what we, that's what we do essentially in schools is yeah. we as we compete and we compare ourselves. I've always thought of like 
we talk all about performance, but what this talks about, Mr. Krabs, the screenshot is really development, like the overall development of a, of a, of a student performance to me is just one element of development, how you perform on certain things, but this gets at a, at a much more holistic picture of a kid. And, um, wouldn't it be fabulous if we could move in that, um, in that direction. And also I, I told you about that little post I saw that said, if you're grading now, you're grading privilege. Yep. And I mean, let's be honest, there's lots of research also that shows that, you know, the scales and the assessments, the standardized tests we use are all biased in one way or another and create inequities. And, um, and, and I, the, the amount of, the amount of tonight is going to talk to us about how she was a test creator she was yeah for for nape the nation's yep. report card and she, you know she'll go through and be like there's 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 no right answers or there's <sighs> four right answers here right you know and i mean tests are fallible tests are human made right tests creators um can try as hard as they want but you always have some amount of bias in your text questions because you're drawing on things that you know yep. right it's natural to to have bias but that doesn't mean we should have all our eggs in that basket. That was a part work. of her big about face, I think, between left back and and the Goliath book um, is her feelings about testing. Right. Um, the other piece that I found really interesting in this that, again, we're, we're going to ask and Diane Ravitch is going to talk to us about later um, is school rankings. And um, – School rankings and, and standardized tests kind of fall in the same category in terms of they're designed to produce winners and losers. Yeah. And I think they're great if you're, you know, a winner, if you're in the top 25th percentile or something like that. But if you're not, it, it's pretty damning to you either as an individual, if you're scoring low in a standardized test or you as a community and as a school. And Again, with schools, you could be a pretty good school. You could be, you know, I don't know, a great school. And based on any number of school rankings, whether it's U.S. News World Report, whether it's any local um, school system rankings, you could be pretty far down in the rankings. And again, it it creates losers when there don't always have to be losers. It doesn't necessarily give a holistic or even correct approach, a perspective on what, what a school is doing. I also don't understand the point of ranking every single or thousands of high schools in the United States. I don't really understand the point of looking at your local school. How does that help to know that you're 800 on a list? Yeah. Property values. uh, Well, obviously. Yeah, certainly. But like it just, I I don't understand the point of it other than the fact that humans like to rank things Um, and Americans in particular like to see winners and losers. (laughs) And there's a lot of, I mean, look, we'd be remiss if we didn't say there's a lot of vested interest out there in people who say, no, grades are really important and grades do have great meaning about how hard a kid works and their, their tenacity, their grit, their stick-to-itiveness. Um, but they're wrong. And the same thing that they would say about schools, you know, well, how can you tell the difference between kid A who's working their butt off to do all this stuff and get this grade in kid B who's not. And so I think the, the grade people, you know, would say that they do provide some sort of delineation or markers between, you know, between students, student performance, um, and, you know, some sort of reflection of the student as well. Right. 
And I remember, um, I remember when I would have uh, one, this policy I created in my own classroom, which was, and I, I think caused Mr. Kozlowski does this now, a listener of Ed's not dead where kids have as many opportunities as they need to redo and reassess work. And there's always students who are concerned about not getting as high a grade, or there are students who maybe try it more than once and get a, a you know, an A or a 95, let's say, and the kid who did it once got a 95 or even a lower grade, but maybe a 94 and still an A. And it's interesting, the, the, the concern that comes out of other students and their, um, their grades compared to my own grade. You know, I only did it once and another student tried it twice and they got the same grade or better grade than I did. Um, it's just, we, we've conditioned kids to only focus on the number that's attributed to an assignment rather than the actual validity of the assignment, the learning that goes on and the feedback that is provided by the instructor. I, I agree with that. The only thing I would disagree with a little bit is that I, I do think there's been a lot of conditioning. I, I a hundred percent agree with you, but I do think that they're naturally humans do tend some, some people are more performance oriented. And so they thrive in those kinds of situations. They like that. So we can't deny that, 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 you know, there's, there's people that feel like they need that kind of measurement because it validates them in some way. And that's not better or worse. That just is, in my opinion, I guess what, what, what we have to do is, you know, create the system that works the best for the most kids. Um, so but what's what but what is the purpose of a grade? Is it is it to promote competition? No. It's not. I I I'm not again, I I'm not quibbling with you on that. I'm I'm quibbling with you on that some people are wired that way. No, I that, I totally and, understand. And and that's that is the system that they want to operate in. They 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 and and listen, there are downsides to that too because I mean, do I have to hit you with some Bandora here? Because I'm going to hit you with it right now. <laughs> but I mean, enough research says that those kind of those kind of grading systems don't actually benefit children. Uh, understood. And and folks with a performance orientation tend to only be able to measure themselves against arbitrary standards. And when they have setbacks, it's harder for them to recover versus mastery oriented people. I'm I'm with you. That's a fact. I don't know why you're shaking your head at me. Um, so <laughs> no one can see that. I can see it. <laughs> so anyway, do you want to pivot? Pivot. So, so we're so su- we're supposed to keep this gr- this archaic grading system for the people who are performance oriented. Is that no? What okay. No. I well, what did, did Crable? Does he listen? Yeah, I think he's acknowledging the difference yeah, I, between students. Yeah, and how I mean, different students and people in general operate. Yeah, and I and I'm saying that one of the challenges of being a public institution is that you know we tend to have to try to create one system that works best for most of the kids. That's what we do. Nothing and I would completely agree with you that our, that us holding on to this system that's a hundred years old does, doesn't, you know, does not serve kids. Um, we should, I'm, I'm all about m- moving towards, you know, some of the things that we're trying right now with, with distance learning. Um, one of the, one of the local tenants in distance learning is, no limit on retakes and reassessment. And I think that that's what you did in your classroom. That's fabulous. Yeah. I hope it sticks. Yeah. 
I think there's a lot of things that I hope that stick from this. Um, all right. You ready to pivot to low energy Jeb? Pivot. <laughs> Jeb exclamation point. Have you ever seen the friends for the friends episode with, with, Ugh, with, friends, with, piv- with pivot in it? No, no. Right. Do yourself a favor and go watch it. It's pretty funny. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm going to skip the introduction of Jeb's op-ed uh, because he he comes on a little strong about how this is the the classroom and stuff going to go away. I know that offended you, Mr. Sins, right? Um, but then <laughs> he's, he's he auditioning. Get, he's auditioning to take over for Betsy. Uh, yeah, he does sound a little bit like her. Um, all K twelve schools need to adapt to distance learning. Already, one third of college students take courses online. The two hundred billion plus market for corporate learning is exploding with content libraries, assessment tools, workflow learning, and micro-learning. Learning is no longer modeled on the traditional classroom, but has become digital, individualized, that's one of Betsy's favorite things, and delivered on smartphones or laptops. So his main tenets here, every district should have available a device and Wi-Fi so every child can participate. Every district should practice and plan for distance learning days every year. Every district should make sure teachers and other instructional professionals understand how to use DL tools. And every district must learn, must plan to virtually serve students with special needs, non-native English learners, and others who require more attention. Thoughts on Jeb's path to not being low energy and distance learning? (laughs) I I think um, I agree with all four of those points. Um, I'm, I'm, there's a there's a blog in the hopper that I'm writing that's called the, the end of snow days that relates to number two, which Ew, is snow days are awesome. <laughs> should should every district should practice and plan for distance <laughs> learning every year? Uh, every district should make available a device and Wi-Fi so every child can participate. Absolutely, but that requires money money that generally the Republicans don't want to provide unless it's in their political benefit. And they generally don't want to spend on public education. So those are infrastructure tools and infrastructure monies that should have been provided um, in an infrastructure plan 20, 30 years ago to provide broadband access to everybody. So hopefully that, uh, you know, this will go further than just an op-ed. I'm, I'm a, if I just, the 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 only being able to walk down the stairway one way and also killing snow days, I you'll be the biggest Grinch ever. <laughs> I do not advocate for that position, nor have I ever advocated for one way hallways. Just for the record, <laughs> no, you advocated no, for a one way stairwell. Stairwells, yes. Grable, stairwells, help me out yes. here. Stairwells, what? yes. Stairwells, yes. I admit it, and it worked, <laughs> and it worked, and it's still in place. Hallways, no. You would, but, but you, I do remember, almost bent to a certain someone to allow for one-way hallways. <laughs> I did. You did. <laughs> I'm just trying to reconcile. Crable, help me out here. I'm trying to reconcile his his highly structured classroom, which was a very positive thing. If if uh, I had the benefit of being in his classroom many times, superlative teacher. So take this for what it's worth, because he knows about more about teaching than me, but. His highly structured, routinized classroom. <laughs> yes, with his disdain for like traditional grading. Yeah, can those two things like coexist? 
Uh, cognitive dissonance. That is. Yeah, that's what I'm feeling. I don't shit. think so. That's such <laughs> bull crap. <laughs> All right. Anyway, sorry. I almost uh, felt the need to curse in that instance. Actually. <laughs> you 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 restrained yourself. I did. Uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. C- uh, Mr. Crable, uh, Jeb's not giving us much here to fight about. Well, no. So I, I will. So I think um, the bullet points that, that you read, I think, are all reasonable steps: access to Wi-Fi, planning for pandemics, planning for you know snow days, other days are out. Totally get it. But I, the the issue that I have is the premise that this starts from that you mentioned that <laughs> learning is no longer modeled on the traditional classroom, but has become digital, individualized, and delivered on smartphones or laptops. So I have a real I have a real problem with that premise. I disagree strongly with it. Um, as Dr. Hargreaves last week told us, schools provide more than just information and knowledge. Schools provide a sense of community. Schools are a place for students to go to learn how to interact with people like them, people different from them. Um, schools are a place for kids to go and find adults outside of their core family that they can believe and trust in and learn from. Non-parental adults. Non-parental. Schools are a place where kids can go so parents can go to work and do stuff. Um, so th- this is just, the, to me, the first step in pushing for completely decentralized, completely online learning. And no, no just no. And we're, I, I fully accept and understand that we're going down this path, and that's fine. I do think at some point there's going to be a backlash um, because one of the arguments that you'll hear is, well, kids should be learning online because that's how they're going to have to learn to work in the real world, and that's how the real world works. No, you hate the real world. Argument. I hate the real world. It's so Mr. Siddons hates it more than you. Stupid. And we, we're preparing seven-year-olds for the real world, really, Seven-year-olds should be met with things that are appropriate developmentally for them. And sitting on a laptop is not one of those things. So hold on, I'm going to cough. You guys take this. Hold on a second. <laughs> uh, did he just mute himself? He did. That that's was very out- skillful. That's outstanding. <laughs> um, at a tickle. But let me finish my, my rant here for a second. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So, um, you know, and I think based at all of this is this, this idea um, – that's based in the market forces, that's based in the free market, that um, schools are just like any other, you know, corporate venture and they can just be done in any number of ways. And I think this just totally um, ignores the reality of, of the other purposes that schools serve aside from straight up information. Yep. I, I, I'm with you. I just, I, so you think you, you tend to think that it's, um, another not so secret conservative plot to undermine public education. Absolutely. Absolutely. When we get, when we get to the the micro grants and the grants um, for Betsy DeVos's plan at the end of the show, yeah, you're, it's all going to come together. Yep. It's, uh, I'm going to get it. It's going to just tinfoil come. hat on today. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I, I I hear you, and I t- and I tend to be with you. I just also know that um you know schools are come on we can all agree that schools are a little bit stubborn about change completely okay so but our desire to change tends to be in the benefit of students and teachers and to help that's not true no i'm talking about ours 
you, me, uh, Rob. the three of us. Yes, yes I agree. It's, we're and, right. Well, yeah, of course we are because we're, we're not. We're not talking about changing the structures in terms of uh, corporatist owners and no. and the, the closing of schools willy nilly and opening up these uh, non accredited charter schools across the nation and uh, p- pushing online learning across the the country uh, so that public schools won't even be operating anymore uh, because they don't like unions or they think it's liberally based or whatever. Uh, I just think that, that the, uh, the desire in their side is much more insidious and much more based in capitalism and, and, and money culture. Than but, ba- but back to your point, I'm with you, but back to your point about, about grading, um, which you feel strongly about that, that is a, that is a marginal, change in schooling that I think all three of us agree would have a significantly positive effect. Yeah. And it's, and it's in some ways happening right now, this change, but will it stick? And so that's where I get a little bit frustrated because, you know, if we, if we, once we're back in a year or two years to business as usual, what, what of these things that we've had to do out of necessity that are great practices for kids Will schools really hold on to them right. Institution- institutionally? I don't know. If it returned everything the same and nothing, <laughs> yeah, nothing and I, was gained and, from it. Yeah. And so, I mean, that this this stuff. I mean, I agree with you that I do think that there's, you know, it's it's another plot in a way. It's just another way to discredit to discredit what we've been doing for all yes. these years. Yes, right. That's essentially what he's saying. It, it's chipping away at right. that. Right. And it's looking back and saying what you're doing right now is not working. Right. And, and it's also another way to cut costs for public education because you don't need as many teachers because you could have an online learning classroom of 200 or you don't need yeah, to build 300 or yeah. maybe one for a thousand. We don't know. Yeah. Um, that allows them to cut pensions. It allows them to cut the retirement benefits of teachers. It allows them to cut the services that are provided in a school building, which are also public, public employees. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows them to cut costs in meals for kids because they don't have to provide them anymore. It, it's, it's goes deeper than just uh, broadening the base of, of the amount of kids that can access learning online. It's more insidious and it's, and it's uh, something that they've been trying to do for many, many years. And this is just another way to leverage that. All right. If you want to check out Mr. Lopolito's uh, letter to the editor op-ed in the Bethesda magazine, uh, please do that. We're, we were glad to share that on the show tonight. And also uh, Jeb Bush's recent opinion piece in the Washington Post, it's time to embrace distance learning and not just because of the coronavirus. When we come back, folks, we are very excited. We're going to have Diane Ravitch on the show, author of Slaying Goliath. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Diane Ravitch is a research professor of education at New York University and a historian of education and a former assistant secretary of education under George H.W. Bush. She's the founder and president of the Network for Public Education. Diane's blog is dianeravitch.net and is a go-to for the most current and progressive thought pieces in education today. It's great to have Diane on the show, fellas. Yes, very Absolutely. 
All right, Diane, you wrote Slaying Goliath and Left Back 20 Years Apart. Both books explore K-12 educational reform, and there have been several notable reform movements since Left Back came out at the turn of the century. How has your thinking on public ed reform changed in the time span between these two important books? In uh, 1991, I was appointed Assistant Secretary of Education in the first Bush administration. And at that time, I was a strong supporter of standardized testing. Uh, The idea of charters was brand new, and it sounded like a really interesting idea to let anyone and everyone open a school and to let other people, uh, private entrepreneurs and hospitals and and, uh, whoever felt like opening a school would open one. And and let's have lots of competition and see how that works out. It was a new idea, and it sounded good to me. We had never tried it. So I supported uh, the whole panoply of uh, what were then market-based reforms. And uh, the Clinton administration had supported market-based reforms as well, and even created a federal program to fund startup charter schools in 1994. Uh, I then served on the uh, bill, actually President Clinton appointed me to the NAEP board, uh, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And I learned a lot about standardized testing. And then after, after I left the Bush administration, um, I was in several different conservative think tanks, uh, one of them being uh, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, which is huge on choice and accountability and uh, you know cracking down on teachers and kids and so forth. And then I was in a think tank at the Hoover Institution, which is a very conservative think uh, place out in California, in Stanford, at Stanford University. Um, and so I was all, all on board for No Child Left Behind when it first came out. Uh, I was actually invited to the East Room of the White House when President Bush announced his program. Uh, it was 27 pages long. It's called No Child Left Behind. And Margaret Spellings and Rod Page and the whole gang were there. And it sounded really good. Test every child every year. And, uh, you know, honor those who make gains and uh, embarrass those who don't make gains. <laughs> and it sounded good. Uh, But then what happened was that um, embedded in these different conservative think tanks, I started to disagree with things uh, and think, well, you know, deep in the belly of of the beast, uh, I was hearing people say, uh, there are a lot of charter schools that open and then they close. Uh, There are a lot of charter schools that open and it turns out that the the man or woman running them uh, is taking money and shifting into their bank account. Uh, and these kinds of concerns were coming up, and the answer was always, well, close them and open another one. And I started to become a dissident, and even within the think tanks, I was disagreeing uh, when the Thomas B. Fordham Institute decided to become a sponsor of charter schools in Dayton, Ohio, which is its home base, although it actually is based in Washington, D.C. The money came from a, a, a big businessman in Dayton. Uh, and one after another, the charter schools failed. Eventually, they all failed, and they were all replaced. And, you know, I thought, well, that didn't work. But right. no, we just opened new, new charter schools, and, some, and they started failing, and they would be replaced by other charter schools. So it became like um, a wake-up call for me that this was not working. But uh, I like to point to a meeting in D.C. at a conservative think tank called the American Enterprise Institute in 2006, and I was asked to uh, summarized at the end of the day of presentations about how is NCLB working. And there were a dozen scholars who were invited to give papers. Is choice working? Is uh, 
the uh, annual adequate yearly progress working, all the different parts of it were analyzed by different scholars from around the country. And every one of the papers said, well, it's not working in Miami. There's already lots of choice. It's not working in New Jersey. It's not working here. It's not working there. And at the end of the day, when I was asked to summarize the day's proceedings, I said, it's not working. What else can you say? Uh, and then I began writing articles and looking at, at the NAEP scores, which initially in the first couple of years of No Child Left Behind, the scores went up because there was more test prep. Right. And then they leveled off and they stopped going up. And I began being very critical. And I went out. It, what I understood was that the first uh, district that actually tried all of these reform ideas and put them in place was San Diego. So I went out to San Diego I made contacts with people there and interviewed teachers and principals and parents and heard one horror story after another about the first full-blown experiment and this kind of metal to, to, to the pedal, uh, you know, rush, 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 uh, fire the teachers, uh, reassign people without regard to what they want, uh, and a very harsh and punitive attitudes towards towards teachers and a belief that you could somehow shove these ideas uh, that came to be called reform down the throats of the people who were doing the work. And uh, that was very enlightening for me. And I, from 2006, seven on, really from 2007 until 2010, I was writing the book that came out called The Death and Life of the Great American School System, uh, the, How Testing and Choice Are Undermining Education. Uh, that book was a national bestseller. I went all over the country. I, heard, I met teachers in uh, countless districts who told me that this book reflected their experience. And yeah. it was the first time they had ever read anything that, that said to them, you're not crazy. I mean, you're, uh, this testing is crazy. The, the, uh, the whole push for choice and taking money away from public schools is crazy. And uh, about 2012, I was going to lecture in someplace in New Jersey, actually at Rutgers, and I was being followed by a reporter from the New Yorker magazine who was doing a profile, and he said to me, well, I've talked to a lot of the people who disagree with you, and they say you have lots of criticisms, but you don't have any answers. Uh, so I said, oh, okay, it's time to write another book. So I, so I wrote a book called Reign of Error, The Hoax of the Privatization Movement, in which I showed more evidence that their ideas were failing, that charters were failing, and vouchers were failing, and merit pay was failing, and all the comp all the emphasis on competition was uh, failing. The race at the top was uh, not not working. Um, and then I devoted a third of the book to solutions. And the solutions were all about addressing children's needs, families' needs. I, my solutions started with making sure that parents uh, that that pregnant women had access to medical care because yeah. this is a huge problem. I mean, when we look at test scores, we're looking at the end result of a lot of other problems that we have not addressed. And the first is just basically, are the children born healthy? And many children uh, whose, whose mother never saw a doctor are born with disabilities, developmental disabilities that could have been avoided had they had medical care. And, I, and I, I I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, Diane. One, one of the things you mentioned just now is that resonated with us on the show. We've talked about it before where it seems like more and more social issues and things out of school's control are placed on the shoulder of teachers and administrators. Do you, do you find that that's the feeling across the nation and, and as you're writing your work, um, that there just seems to be added burden to the school systems in that sense? Well, what, what I was trying to do in the three books I've written on the subject was to make the point as 
loudly as I could uh, that most of the things that affect test scores are beyond the control of the school. Right. Okay. This has been well known by social scientists for decades. This is not even a secret. But what the so-called reform movement believes that if you fire enough teachers, and you know, part of my Hoover task force was uh, included people who who earnestly believe that you should fire teachers every year if they don't get a high high enough test scores in their classes, right? Uh, and destabilize the school and demoralize the teaching profession. But just keep firing teachers, and eventually test scores would rise, and it would add trillions to the to our national economy. It's a ridiculous idea. Uh, but what I was trying to do in these books was to say that poverty is the most important determinant, poverty and affluence are the most yeah. important determinant of test scores. And that if you want to ha if your concern is test scores, uh, you don't address testing directly. What you address is the conditions in which children live. Right. And um, I, I, just, I just finished slaying Goliath. I must say, if you don't have it yet, please get it. I will say, I'll be honest, the first few sections, I was pretty bummed. I was saddened at how far and, and the way you describe it, I think, is incredibly uh, apropos, but uh, how far our public education system has devolved into corporatism and how it's been politicized. However, as the book goes on, you talk about the resistance, the disruptors, and, and how the disruptors are losing. So I found myself feeling much better about <laughs> where our public education system is headed, which is great. What do you attribute these battles to, and, and how is it that billionaires and, and the wealthy of all political stripes are losing to the resistance in the form of, of frontline educators? Well, I, I think that, that a lot of educators fell for the claims that were being, the, the slanders that were being directed to them. They internalized them. And yeah. what we've heard from the likes of Bill Gates and Eli Broad and the Walton family and all the people they, that are on their payroll, which is just, I mean, Look sometime at the list of people that the Walton Family Foundation funds. It's staggering, uh, including yeah. some of our major media. I, um, as I'm listening to NPR, I get like chills when I, re when I read the, the description of all the people that you noted in your book. I'm like, oh, man, I heard those on NPR. That's not good. Well, a lot of people in education, a lot of people doing the work, internalized all these charges against them. Uh, and, for example, gave credibility to the idea that competition will improve the schools. It doesn't improve schools. Uh, it demoralizes people. People are, are there. People should be collaborating, not competing. Yep. And uh, the best work the teachers do is done in collaboration with other teachers. Um, but what I was trying to do was to say, stop internalizing all this negativity uh, and recognize that these guys, just because they have a lot of money doesn't mean they're smart. They're actually, uh, when it comes to education, they're very stupid. <laughs> I mean, they, they keep pouring millions and millions and hundreds of millions into failed ideas, uh, value-added assessment being one of them, uh, where I give the example of, I think it was in Hillsborough County, they almost bankrupted Hillsborough County, Florida, trying to prove that if you paid teachers based on their kids' scores, that uh, you would serve kids better. In fact, you serve kids worse because the more you use the value-added assessment, the more it incentivizes teachers to avoid the classes with, uh, that have kids with disabilities and, and yep. the neediest kids. Yep. So you're, you're basically re rewarding teachers because of who's, who is in their classroom, not because they're better teachers. But I wanted the book to do two things. I wanted, first of all, to give hope to educators and parents to say you're not losing, you're actually winning because everything they've tried has already failed. And I also wanted to send a very loud message to what I call the disruptors, and say, stop pouring money down this hole. Uh, do useful things. Yeah. One very good 
very encouraging piece of news that I've heard was, and I included this in, uh, I have a paperback edition coming out in the fall. So I included this link in, in the uh, paperback edition, and that is a story in, in Education Week that said that a lot of philanthropists, not Bill Gates, not mm -hmm. the Walton family, not Eli Broad, but a lot of philanthropists are realizing that it's a waste of money to continue to invest in what's called K-12 reform, meaning testing standards and accountability, and instead they're going to be putting money into education of the arts, education, mental health, education, and the school to prison pipeline. Huh. And I was like, I wanted to jump up and down and say, <laughs> yes, 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 this is great. You know, like they've been following Bill Gates like lemmings because he's a self-declared genius. Right. And he, on education, he really doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. And um, so as, as you were talking, I, I found it really fascinating because um, you're talking about someone like the thinking in some of the more conservative market-based reform movements. And, and then thinking about billionaires, I mean, take us a little bit behind the thinking. Why, why do the Bill Gates, et cetera, of the world think that they can fix education? Is it hubris? Is it an excessive amount of money? And, and why is it coincidence or is there some other reason why um, they've kind of latched on to the school choice movement specifically along with testing and probably now like technology, those seem to be maybe like the three big areas. Is, it, is there some connection there? Well, the first you have to understand that they've all become billionaires because of the free market. So they really love the free market. It, it worked for them. And so if it worked for them, surely it must work for everyone. Right. And they've become very successful because of competition. And they don't understand that a school is not like a shoe store. You don't just open and close schools the way you open and close, um, you know, a, a shoe store that doesn't make it and so it closes and then another one takes its place or, or maybe there's a mall that closes like walmart that closes all of the little stores around it yeah. that's the way walmart operates yep. is that it basically it wipes out main street and so uh the, the waltons have been uh ferocious in funding the school choice movement uh, my guess is that if they had their druthers they would be supporting vouchers and not charters but it's easier to sell charters uh, i think that after the Supreme Court weighs in on the uh, Espinosa versus Montana case, which is supposedly going to be decided this term, uh, the last legal, the last constitutional obstacle to vouchers will disappear. But what I predict is that uh, even if that constitutional obstacle is removed, even if states can no longer prohibit vouchers, very few people will use them because we've seen this, whether it's Florida or Indiana or Ohio or other states that have wide open voucher programs, about two or 3% of the kids use the vouchers. Uh, what's pathetic though, is they're going to really terrible schools. They're, they're going, instead, they say, well, poor kids should have the same choice as rich kids. Right. Well, the rich kids' parents are paying 40 to 50,000 a year, and the poor kids are getting a voucher worth four to $5,000, which they can take to uh, a religious school where the teachers are not certified, and wow. they may not even be college graduates. So they're getting a horrible education, and in the meanwhile, uh, in Florida, for example, the vouchers are costing the state of Florida a billion dollars a year. It's taken away from public schools, and the charters are costing Florida $2 billion a year, which wow. is taken away from public schools. And the charter schools, there are almost as many closing as there are opening, and they have a huge for-profit sector in Florida. Wow. So, so Diane, um, you've come to the point where you see those things not working. So... Um, you're a researcher, you're connected to all kinds of people in education. What, what is working? If, if, if coercive accountability choice um, standards have not been the answer, 
What do you see around the nation that's working to close opportunity and achievement gaps and, and serve the needs of underserved kids and students of color? Well, I think the um, important thing to bear in mind is this term achievement gap is loaded. It really is an opportunity gap. Uh, and achievement gap is always refers to standardized test scores, that some kids are doing well on the, on the test and others are doing badly. But you have to bear in mind that the nature of the standardized tests is that they're normed on a bell curve. They're designed to have a top half and a bottom half, and which means that you will never, ch- you can't close the achievement gap because it's a socially constructed gap. And therefore, we, we, we closed it by 2014. Don't you remember? We were 100%. Yes, that was a mandate. Uh, there are a lot of other things that have been mandated, but uh, you might as well mandate uh, that there'll be no crime in any city in America and then threaten to take away everyone, every policeman's badge if they don't achieve that goal. Uh, the, um, the achievement gap is a social construction. Uh, what we should be doing is making sure that, um, I mean, what we should be doing, number one, is getting rid of this federal law that requires annual mandated testing. Yes. Because uh, it fa- it's failed for 20 years. I mean, the scores have, go- as I showed in the book, the scores have gone flat. If anything, uh, they're falling for the kids who are most behind. Uh, and the constant emphasis on testing has taken away the things that make school fun for a, a lot of kids. It- it's caused for many kids not to have the arts, not... Yeah. Uh, they have less science, less civics, less history. All of these subjects are ignored. And I, I'm very persuaded uh, by the work of, of uh, there's a recent book by Posse Salberg and William Doyle called Let the Children Play. Uh, and a new book about, about educational uh, leadership by uh, Michael Hines, H-Y-N-E-S. And Michael is a superintendent in Long Island. And he's a revolutionary figure. He believes that uh, we should be focused on creativity, and this is important for children of all races and, and all income levels. Uh, they need to have time to find themselves, to be centered. I think right now in particular, because we're in the midst of this horrible pandemic, we have to think about a different paradigm of education when we, whenever school starts again. We have to think about something that I would call trauma-informed instruction. These kids have been through something uh, that none of us in our lifetimes have ever experienced. And, and you know, we're adults, they're, they're little kids, and they're thinking the world's gone crazy. A lot of these kids have seen death in their family. They've lost a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle. Someone in their family has been effect, directly affected, and it's a scary, scary world. Yeah. And they, they depend on us to protect them from the forces out there. So I think we have to begin the school year with a lot of support for them and give them some space. and the worst thing we could do is to start testing them at once and to say, how much ground did you lose? Yeah. I keep hearing this term used as though everybody's in a foot race. And if you're not, if if the race has been temporarily suspended, we have to start racing again as soon as we get back to school. The governor of California suggested that school should probably start in mid-July or even early August to make up for lost ground. Well, that's nuts. I mean, leave the kids alone. Let, let Let them have some space and, and, uh, well, he said he wanted to get his own kids back in school. And we just talked about this before you came on, which was, what is this going to look like when we go back? And, and when does that happen? I think it's going to depend on the states. And the states that go back too soon are going to, uh, that one researcher from the New York Times I was referencing where he talked about the dance. And, you know, uh, some school districts are going to go into the fall and they're going to have to, 
close down again because uh, an outbreak of the virus. And that's unfortunately, that's going to happen in all too many places. Well, if, if it comes back, and, and there have been many people who've said there'll be a second round, including uh, Dr. Fauci, and he's uh, warned that, that it, it could recur. And that yeah. there, right now, I think there are 31 states starting to reopen. Yeah. And, you know, I think that this is a time for where we really need national leadership and we don't have it. Uh, we really need somebody who, who can coordinate uh, the states and talk to the American people about what's really at risk, yep. including their lives. Yeah. Uh, but instead, we have all these wildcat governors saying, uh, you're not going to close my state. And Iowa being an example now where a number of the meat processing plants have had to close down because so many of their workers are sick uh, and some have died. Yep. And so they've been given an order, you will report to work or you'll lose your unemployment insurance. And I wondered, does this mean that sick workers are going to go back to work and, and have their you know, sneezing on the meat that they're packing for us. I think, you know, yeah. this is a good argument for becoming a vegetarian. Ah, I was, I was just going to mention that because I've been <laughs> a vegetarian for three years. I'm, I'm coming out on the winning end. Okay. Well, you made a good choice. <laughs> uh, uh, Diane, la last question before we move on to Casey's uh, infamous guest quiz. So I, <laughs> I hope you're prepared. Um, the, uh, the, our show after all is, is called Ed's Not Dead. We believe strongly that Public Ed is alive and well, as I know, as we know you do. The story of David finally de defeating Goliath uh, is really one of underdogs and under-resourced and underappreciated folks. What do you want your readers and the general public to take away from uh, your your narrative on the current state of public schools in the nation? Well, first of all, I, I've tried um, in all three of these books to say that public education is not failing. Our society is failing. It's been failing children. It's been failing families. Uh, poverty is the single biggest cause of kids doing poorly in school and uh, absenteeism, illness, uh, other things co that contribute. And I hope they would take away that the tests that we're using are invalid, uh, that they're, they're not useful, they're not accurate, um, and that we should find we should have a fresh vision for education yeah. and the thing we should be thinking about during this pandemic is if if the test didn't exist and i hope that in the next reauthorization of this federal law that this mandate is taken away how can we reconstruct our public education system so that it serves the needs of children uh, so that we allow teachers to assess their students uh, allow them to write write the test because they know what they taught mm -hmm. uh, and stop relying on standardized tests, uh, which are uh, really not useful in terms of uh, imposing from afar some test questions. And, and I think what I would like to uh, leave you with, although I'm not leaving yet, is the <laughs> idea <laughs> that the, the lesson of standardized tests is very poisonous. And that is that there is one right answer to every question and that every question has four possible answers, one of them right and the other three wrong. This is bad thinking. This is sloppy thinking. And we shouldn't be teaching our children this. We should be teaching them that the most important thing they can do is to think about things and to come up with some good questions. Why are we in this mess? What should we be doing differently? What kind of an education system should we have so that everybody is felt uh, feels that they're valued, so that everyone's talents are developed and that so that every every child has an opportunity to learn and to develop into uh, a citizen who will be a, a good part of our society. These are the, I mean, maybe these are not the right questions, but these are the questions we should be asking and we should stop with this 
nonsense of there's a right answer. I, yep. You know, I told you I was on the NAEP board for seven years and I used to read test questions and very often I would find a, a test question where there was no right answer. And it would annoy me no end or there'd be two right answers. And I'd say, yeah. well, can anyone tell me which of these answers is better? And everyone would kind of stop and say, you're right. There are two right answers or there's <laughs> no right answer. So why are we inflicting this garbage on our kids? Yeah. So I hope that people will come away with um, an understanding that we need a different approach to education and a fresh vision that values every child. All right. Well said. Thank you, Diane. Amen to that. Amen. Uh, now this is the tough part of the show. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Siddons has, his, has one of his patented quizzes ready for you. It's all you, Casey. Go ahead. So, Diane Ravitch, it has been great having you on the show. Before you leave, and since you are a fellow educator, we have to end our time with a short quiz before you go. We know that you're an educator. Is it not standardized? It's not standardized? No, but it's, it's, like it's 25 right answers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we know you're an educator, you're an author, you're a speaker and researcher, and you are a force of nature. But we want to know what you know about Hurricane Diane a now-retired name for a hurricane from back in 1956. If you answer two of the three quirky facts correctly about the, one of the most devastating natural disasters in our nation's history, you win. Are you ready? I, can't, I, I don't know Hurricane Diane. Well, <laughs> you're going to learn from some of it and now. I, and I lived in, in Hurricane Alley in Houston, Texas, and graduated high school in 1956. Well, oh, here we go. <laughs> So, number one, the name Diane was retired from the Atlantic Hurricane naming list after it was all over. Due to the damage from hurricanes in 1954 and 55, including Diane, public outcry over storm damage led to the creation of what organization in 1956? Is it A, the National Hurricane Center, B, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, or C, the Capital Weather Gang? Geez, I would guess that this is surely a guess that it would be... A the National Hurricane Center. You South are correct. Columbia. The National Hurricane oh, a good, Center. Was good guess. I have no Very idea. Good. <laughs> All right. Number, this is a total standardized test, Mr. Number, <laughs> number two, in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, my homestead, post Hurricane Diane, there was a food shortage and officials enacted a curfew after reports of flooding, looting. In the same <laughs> city, sorry, looting. In the same city, water was shipped in what kind of containers to the flood victims? A tanker trucks, B, five-gallon buckets, or C, milk cartons? Um, it's a sheer guess. I have no ideas. Therefore, I'll guess tanker trucks. Oh, incorrect. It's actually milk cartons. Oh, okay. It later uh, inspired Federal Civil Defense Administration proposal to use water packaged in milk containers in the event of a nuclear attack. That's my history nerd background. Okay, right so there. you might be interested to know that the DeVos family, Betsy DeVos's family, owns a company uh, that sells bottled, uh, I'm sorry, Water in cartons. Really? So whenever you see water in cartons, look for the label. And if it comes from Grand Rapids, Michigan, it's owned by the DeVos family. Oh, wow. Very nice. We, we do a Dear Betsy segment, Diane. So we're gonna, that's that's going to be in there. That's I need to include that. Yes. That's outstanding. All right, number three. The Pennsylvania state government implement, implemented a tax on what vice to help pay for storm damage, which lasted for about two years? A, liquor, B, gambling, or C, cigarettes? I guess a share guess because I'm not from Pennsylvania. I'll say um, cigarettes. Cigarettes is correct. Yes. Well done. This was par this was partially due to a lack of significant funding from the federal government. 
Nice job. You got that's two out of three why, right. That's why Diane Ravitch is one of the foremost uh, educational thinkers in the nation. That's right. Good, good, good guessing. <laughs> thank you for playing along, Diane, and thank you for coming on our show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. And, and uh, if you, for our listeners, if you haven't picked up Slaying Goliath, please, please pick it up. It's, it's a, a really a great read, and uh, it, it indeed gives me hope for the future of our system, our public education system. Um, so thank you so much, Diane. We appreciate you. Well, thank you. And, and uh, keep your spirits up and be ready whenever school reopens. I, I hope it's September. I hope it's not sooner because I think everybody needs to take a deep breath. And my advice to parents is relax. Don't <laughs> pressure the kids. Everybody's under a lot of pressure. Yep. And you're not, they're not going to lose the race. They're not going to lose the global competition. Um, play with them. Talk to them. Encourage them to read. Go for some walks. I love it. Go for a long walk. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, and um, awesome. good luck in all your in future endeavors and when you return to school. All right. The book is, the book is Slaying Goliath. Um, thanks, Diane. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome back to Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I am still with my co-host via Zoom, Mr. Crable, yes. Mr. Siddons. What's up, boys? Hey. Hey. That was an awesome interview. Thanks again to Diane Ravitch for coming on the show. Indeed. Yeah, it was really, really great. Very gracious. Appreciate yep. your time. I know you're, you're a huge fan of hers, uh, Mr. Siddons, probably because you really like the, the, the new book, right? It's outstanding. It's very, very yep. good. Yep. <laughs> Casey uh, fanboyed a little bit uh, prior to the interview. I did. <laughs> he did, and he got a little resentful for me because you know I I I took a I took a couple of you know well informed but maybe outdated shots at our friend Diane Ravitch. Yeah, Back when I was a teacher, okay. <laughs> let me tell you how I felt about you. <laughs> I never said that. I did, I did want to point out that in the show notes, I had a question about her famous pivot. <laughs> pivot <laughs> that um, she ended up basically saying the exact same thing I asked in the question. Did she not? Well, I also, I'm, I appreciate accountability. You deleted the huh? other ones. You, you deleted a couple other ones that I felt were, that was a good thing to do. All right. Just keep, just keep taking it easy on our guests. That's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> we're the now fun time show. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Now it's time to not take it easy on Dear Betsy, Mr. Siddons. Dear Betsy is back. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about, you all read this article, Betsy DeVos finds new pot of cash to push mm -hmm. education agenda, federal COVID-19 relief money. Did you check this out yet? She just could have gone to Amway and gotten some out of Amway. <laughs> <laughs> gone to her, gone to her mattress. Well, yeah, of gold buried or, to, or to her brother's uh, guerrilla warfare company, <laughs> some good Blackwater her brother's money. private army. Yeah. Well, we we I mean we all are we all are very uh, keenly aware of Betsy's um, dedication to the public school system of our country and our public <laughs> school students, oh, and um, we know her dedication to building out uh, more effective teaching and and teaching and learning in public schools, but. This one is all about the money that's coming through the coronavirus relief package that uh, came through uh, the, the most recent one. 
which is that there was a $2 trillion coronavirus relief package and she, she found a new pot of cash with which to pursue her school choice agenda. This article is by Valerie Strauss, the, um, from the Washington post. And it's all about trying to start these, uh, mini grants or rethinking quote unquote education grants. And her quote was the current disruption to the normal model is reaffirming something I have said for years. We must rethink education to better match the realities of the 21st century. She said, quote, this is the time for local education leaders to unleash their creativity and ingenuity. And I'm looking forward to seeing what they do to provide education freedom and economic opportunity for American students. Don't you guys love education freedom? I do love it. It it's so nice. good. I'm once, actually it, do. once it hits I your don't lips, anybody telling me what to do. <laughs> once it hits your lips, education freedom tastes so good and goes down smooth. Um, so, what do you all think about the, uh, the the little mini grants that that Miss DeVos is is putting through here? Who doesn't like micro grants? Micro grants are the are the wave of the future. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because you know traditional public schools are a monopoly and they're a dead end, right? That's right. That's Allows right. parents to access high quality remote learning options, both public and private. Oh, shocker! There. Don't yeah, let so, a crisis go to waste. <laughs> so yeah, the the three parts of it. Um, I mean, again, you look at the quote, it's Casey's reading it, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, give local education leaders power to create local solutions. I mean, we can all agree that that sounds like a good idea, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, I, I've, since everybody can't see me, I've put my tinfoil hat back on. <laughs> um, so I'm going into my conspiracy theory rabbit hole. But again, I, you know, it's, it's part of the push um, to weaken, as Casey said, traditional schools. It's part of the push um, to take education out of brick and mortar schools and give them to corporations because it is corporations that run, um, that would be running the online learning options. Uh, the other part is the statewide virtual learning and course access programs, which is like virtual schools. Um, and then the last one is a super vague field initiated project for educational models for remote learning to improve student outcomes which they actually provided basically no criteria for what that actually entails. So <laughs> I think, you know, again, you could give her the, the benefit of the doubt if you want, but what's going to end up happening um, is anybody who is looking to take students out of public schools, anybody who is uh, following or believes in a corporate model uh, will be getting money. Anybody who does not serve all students, anybody who's private and or parochial because they can also receive funds, will be getting money. So more of the same, more anti-public schools, more anti-system. But it's interesting that uh, we're, she's using these funds from the CARES Act for really the first time in her tenure to actually uh, throw money at students leaving or trying to push students and families to leave public schools. Cause up until now, well, you know why? Tell me why. Well, what do, what are all, all of these are another name for what? Anyone, anyone? School choice. Vouchers. Vouchers. Yeah. These choice. are all vouchers. Yes. And states all over the country have rejected vouchers. 
again and again and again. Local municipalities, yep. rejected vouchers. Statewide referendums, rejected vouchers. There's very few vouchers programs still going in the country for a reason. Nobody wants them. But when you get a prod of money and you don't really have to go through the traditional legislative process, this is what you end up with is just Correct. another way to do vouchers. And again, as Casey said, don't let a good, you know, don't let a crisis go to waste. And so they're, you know, they're taking this, you know, and without understanding, in my opinion, whether it's actually a good, a good um, alternative to public schools, they're just throwing at this because it is an alternative, not because it's necessarily right. a good alternative. All right, so let me, let me play DA correct here. Me if, correct me if I'm wrong, though. This is the first time that she has had money to put into place something like this voucher program where they're just able to... I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't think, I mean, I don't think she spent much. She hasn't... They, I mean, she, there hasn't been much money allocated to... No. Uh, not like they did with Arnie Duncan and Race to the Top. All right, so there you go. Nice segue. Is this any more onerous than Race to the Top? It's it's a continuation of the George W. Bush and Arnie Duncan Obama uh, education policy. So it's almost po- it's almost politically neutral. I mean, you could say that. I mean, was evaluating a teacher every year and uh, 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 school improvement grants, which, by the way. Um, Hundreds of millions of dollars were put out to states for SIGs, um, which didn't really reap anything other yep. than other than maybe keeping some school systems afloat in some very difficult times. I will yeah. give them I will give them that. But a lot of them, again, just continued the punitive approach to school improvement. And and, um, and Diane Rabbit. Ha, ha, but but politically, is- how is that any less onerous than what she's doing? It's not. I'm and and slaying Goliath. She she talks about it extensively, which is we started with the George W. Bush No Child Left Behind Act, right? It continued into the Obama administration and continues to this day into the Trump administration. So it it doesn't it it doesn't matter what political stripe you go by. It's just another arm of bad policy and throwing money at a at a at a at a, a way to decentralize education and. To push it more towards school choice. So, as as understaffed as the Department of Ed is right now, Mr. Crable, to your point, you, you made it sound like there were going to be a, a lot of really informed people seat, uh, sitting and reading these grants. <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering if you could just uh, make something up, semi creative, and 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 put some of the bells and whistles on they want to see, and then actually get a pot of money to do something innovative. Absolutely. I think the money is there for the taking um, and just judging on within the the administration at large, some of the things that are coming out about who's getting the money for various things as related to um, coronavirus coronavirus relief efforts. I think you might be onto something. Well, it's a really easy application process. Uh, Apparently the department will decide which states have the highest coronavirus burden which include an analysis of how the state has used its assets and collaborative efforts in its coronavirus response and a signed commitment from the governor that they support the application. Easy. There you go. That sounds pretty easy to me. Yeah. Um, open up an Ed's Not Dead virtual school. There you go. I mean, I, 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 do, I, do, I do have to say that, um, I mean, can we, can we agree that um, the time has come for schools to – have a more robust digital infrastructure to support these kinds of things. And I've, you know, that I've been banging the bell of that the private sector should be involved yes. in making sure that kids and families have access to broadband internet 
I mean, it should be, in my opinion, it should be, uh, uh, you know, it, it's the same as electricity. It's a utility. They should have it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a yes, but. Okay. Give me the but. My butt is um <laughs> butt is what? Okay. Okay. that sentence. Uh it's that with the inclusion and the adaptation, sorry, the adoption of technology, yeah. I think you run the risk of going too far. I'm I'm you know, where it becomes the answer, it becomes the savior, it becomes the teacher, it becomes the greater, it becomes the everything. And so, so that's I, just that's what, I, that's my I guess the thing that you guys, I mean, I don't want to, Casey, you're in a high school right now and I, I don't know how much you see it, but I think maybe Mr. Krabs and I'm, I'm doing my best to not sound condescending right now. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that you know the extent to which high school kids are already interacting and taking courses online um in a classroom for for a variety of reasons oh absolutely during the day at night yeah i mean it's 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 a fairly common thing now and i i mean so there were pieces of the infrastructure and casey's been involved in this he's been a teacher in this program that that were there but weak right mr mr siddons yep um that i think if if they are strengthened that would be a good thing for for education on the whole and I'm not advocating for no inclusion of that. I just know how education works is something comes along and it's all the chips go into that pot. Yeah, they do. It's Everybody the flavor puts of the all month. their right. And everybody puts yeah. all their money and all their effort and all their everything into that. And if we're not already there, you know, we're going there for technology. And As- that just that just gives me pause. That's all. The way the, the, access the, widespread, yeah. of course, yes, all of that stuff. Access the use of some of some uh, to some uh, amount online learning and or remote courses. Yes, definitely. Some and, but, and and don't you want a workforce that there's a minimum level of skill of being able to do this? Yes, yeah, definitely. Okay. I mean, I think but I also don't want. I also don't want my seven year old, my eight year old, my ten year old on a computer screen for six hours a day. Yeah. yeah. Like they're, we're turning them into these little office, you know, office drones in a cubicle. Like that's horrible. That's horrifying. Well, well, we're not, do, we're, do, we're doing that out of necessity right now. I'm I mean, just, okay. this is emergency learning. I mean, that, what, what would you, would you prefer no school at all right now? I'm not now? talking about now. I'm talking about in general. Okay. Well, I, I don't, I mean, uh, you, you take off the tin hat for a second. <laughs> Jeez. God. No. <laughs> Just as long as he doesn't start talking about eating his neighbors, we're, we're okay. You just be careful. You you let in Silicon Valley. You let in those microchips. You let in those microchips your, your, your house. See what he, happens. He, he They're was, tracking you, Robbie. They're he, tracking you. He who has sent multiple applications to Silicon Valley companies <laughs> over the last several years. That's oh, so true. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a good Dear Betsy, Mr. Siddons. I'm glad I can contribute. You just <laughs> you just slam that glass. Hardy water <laughs> slam. Crable, I'm glad you put your hat back on right there for a second with your hair kind of sticking out <laughs> crazily as you were staring into the camera. Yeah. You were just you were about to go around the bend. I have a, I have a knife uh, hidden in my back pocket. I was about to pull it out. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Morose. Uh, all right. Uh, it's that time of the show. What are we watching this week, Mr. Siddons? Oh, dear. Uh Rick and Morty season four. Oh, Rick and Morty. Yep. Just watched the, the most recent episode tonight. 
Very nice. In fact, I was in the middle of it when Crable opened up the Zoom, so I got to finish it. Did you get through those last several levels in your video game? I did. I have four or five more missions left. Okay. Ooh, baby. Was, it, we didn't record that long ago when he said he had 42. <laughs> oh, my God. It was... I, I, didn't, I couldn't remember how many it was. It was a lot. A are lot. You, are you sleeping at night? I, sometimes I sneak away after, <laughs> and, and, after, at night and go over and play. That's so good. <laughs> do, you, do you really? I have to finish it. <laughs> That's, you do have to finish it. All right, Mr. Krabs. Uh, I just watched a movie uh, called Good Boys. Oh, oh Johnny told that. Johnny told me about Dude, that. Dude, it is. It's is it outstanding? Freaking hilarious! Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I heard it's I, very good. Seth Rogen is involved in some way, like a producing. I think, and it's generally you know that crew that did like Superbad and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's a good crew. Yeah, so it follows a bunch of. Um, like, oh, it's Judd. I think it's Judd Apatow. It could be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's the direct. He's the director. Yeah. So a bunch of follows a bunch of sixth graders and just basically you know they're it's it's miniature. Seth Rogen, uh, Danny McBride, et cetera, <laughs> cursing left and right, being just totally ridiculous. And I, I, I laughed out loud quite a bit. It was <laughs> really funny. All right. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, I, I, that's been out for, that's like two years old, right? It's, yeah, not, it's not new, uh, yeah. but it just came across my radar. I remember Johnny, my son telling me about it. All right. Uh, aside from the last dance, which I won't bore our listeners with, cause I talked about it too much on the last episode. Uh, I had one of those moments with my 16-year-old today. I don't think I've seen him this way since we watched a Penguin documentary when he was four, and I looked over, and he tears were streaming down his face <laughs> as the father penguin died in the cold. Spoiler uh, alert. No, no, today we watched the last episode of The Clone Wars, Ooh. and... Um, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it. It was amazing, Mr. Krabs. You got to check it out. Oh, yeah, I'm going to. Um, and I looked over at him, and he was just like he was with the Penguin movie. He was just torn up. Oh, um, so it had that. It had that kind of impact on him. Seven year show. So for him, it was pretty momentous to yeah. be to come to come to the end. You're you're gonna like it. Love it. It's a it's a it's a it's a good show. Yeah, I like it. All right. Uh, any last words there, fellas? Uh, you got any parting wisdom for the audience? Uh, no, just stay tuned. We got a big guest coming up um, next show. We have uh, John King, former uh, Secretary of Education under President Obama. Oh, uh, we're going to talk to him yeah, about the, the pandemic, where we are um, as it relates to equity and then kind of solutions not only now to address some equity issues, but also moving forward. A lot of what we talked about is what are we going to keep um, when this is all said and done um, that needs to be kept and what are we going to change that needs to be changed? Got it. Got it. That's going to be a, that's your, the, the string, the run continues, Mr. Siddons. We're yeah. working on it. Yeah. Good job, buddy. You're the, next you're up, the, Michael Jordan. You should be working for a band booking, <laughs> booking gigs. You're so, you you're, you're really good at this. Mr. Crable had had you like three bands ago. He wouldn't even be doing this with us. I'd be, I'd be huge. I'd be so <laughs> he'd be, famous. He'd be so famous. Instead, I sent one email and got one gig. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As always, folks, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership instruction and 21st century school reform. You can follow us on Twitter at Ed's Not Dead PC. Check out the website, edsnotdead.com. 
Mr. Siddons has a couple new sweet blog posts up there and principles in the classroom. Check it out. Yeah. Better not say anything bad about me. And, uh, Mr. Crable will tweet when he gets that letter to the editor published in the post, right? You know it. All right. Uh, once again, thanks to Diane Ravage so much for coming on. Ed's not dead. It was great to have her and, uh, spread the word about the show. <laughs> and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. See you, fellas. Bye. Bye.